fire them. Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes podcast, where we've brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand, and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bites in the cloud. And sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. This episode is all about the levels of support customers can find in the cloud. My name is Brian Knudsen. I'm a cloud technologist for iLAN, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes a stellar group of IT practitioners and industry influencers. Let's start by having each of our panelists quickly introduce themselves with their current role and a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about the support customers receive from cloud providers. Hello, my name is Lindy Collier. I am an account executive at VMware. And my thoughts on today's topic is that interview a cloud provider like you would interview your next employee. Hi, this is Phil Sellers. I'm a platform engineering manager for an insurance company based in Charlotte, North Carolina. When it comes to support and our cloud providers, we're always looking against the SLAs and we're looking at the level of support because Frankly, support is the biggest thing that you're giving up when you outsource to a cloud provider. Hi, I'm Tom Hollingsworth. I am an event lead for Tech Field Day, as well as a networking analyst. And I believe that support is probably the most important part of your decision when you're trying to decide on a cloud provider. Because remember, those are the people that are going to talk to you on the worst day of your life. You want to make sure that they're not going to make it even worse. (laughs) Well, thank you all for joining me. When moving applications and data into the cloud, customers are sometimes surprised at the level of support they receive. Shared responsibility models and platforms designed for self or community support are new wrinkles in support models that don't exist with on-premises deployments. Some providers like Island and Rackspace, for example, make a lot of noise about the level of support services and customer focus we provide. Phil, when evaluating cloud providers, how are customers evaluating the support they will receive? Well, for us, it's always really important for us to do some sort of a POC and actually get to run inside of the cloud provider. That's almost a requirement for any new cloud environment that we adopt. And that's primarily because we want to see how we're treated and we want to see exactly what we can expect when problems occur. You know, we will intently try to break things during a POC. That's one of the things I task my engineers with is to um, break it and then let's try to see how well we can fix it and what their services look like on the back end. Because at the end of the day, we're becoming a partner with this company. We're looking at them as an extension of our IT team to augment what we're not currently or not going to be taken care of. So they're an extension of our team and we want to know that they're competent. We want to know that they're able to meet our needs when trouble arises. That's a great point. I've definitely seen a lot of the customers that Island has from, you know, just to give my own perspective on it, that we consistently are seeing kudos to our team, both pre-sales and post-sales and how they're taking care of customers. And that That just warms my heart because I know that means that we're doing the right things across the company to give them what they need. I feel it's important that when you're doing the research, you also need to look at a lot of other 
sources of information. Uh, Social media, believe it or not, is actually a really good place to find out what support organizations look like. How active are people on, say, their Twitter account, especially if it's a support-focused Twitter account? Are they consistently reaching out to people to fix problems? Are they redirecting folks to resources? You get a feel for who is working behind the scenes when you see genuine personal touches, like you tell that people really want to solve the problem as opposed to what I see a lot of large organizations trying to do, which is to redirect the conversation out of the public light just to kind of keep a lid on what's going on. And I I feel like you can know generally within, I don't know, reading, say, 20 or 30 tweets, how likely you are to get a satisfactory result out of your support. I think to also reiterate what you had stated, Tom, at the very beginning of this podcast was, you know, the provider that you choose is going to be the person that's going to be working with you on your worst day. So, you know, having that understanding and seeing how they might relate to other situations, similar situations, it makes it uh, very important. You know, the social media aspect is really critical, too, because, you know, it goes into how does the provider communicate with you? What modes of communication are they using to get the word out when there's a problem? Because notification and awareness of an issue is a critical matter because it's not your data center. It's often not your monitoring necessarily that may let you know that there's an issue. So are they communicating through Slack or are they communicating through Twitter or are they trying to um, you know, drive you to some antiquated support portal where they're lagging 30 minutes behind what's currently going on and you're waiting for the little green icon to turn red because you know that there's a problem? That sort of responsiveness is really critical because you're going to have to go back and face your company's executive team and answer and provide updates as if you were running the IT in-house. So that communication becomes really critical. Do you find that that is a more of a proactive approach than, like you said, having your support ticket sitting in a black hole? Having that service provider going and being proactive means more to a business than, you know, hey, I put in my support ticket. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, I don't want to be waiting on a response for a support ticket. You know, ideally, there's some level of phone support for critical outage situations and you're not forced to web resources. I think that's too common with a lot of cloud services at this point. You know, they try to cheap on the support side. And to Tom's point, you know, who are you going to turn to on your worst day? I like what you said initially, Phil, around the POC aspect of it and, and truly embedding yourself kind of in how they are going to interact with you whether that be breaking it and see how they react to that, whether it be calling them up and asking questions about the platform to see, are they only there for break fix? Are they there to help you be successful? I think are all really important things to trial with them ahead of time, because that's the only really the way to know how they're going to interact with you in a post-sales basis. Yeah, we've definitely had a lot better luck when we've gone through those activities, you know, because it gives us an eyes wide open sort of viewpoint for the partnership. And that's something that's important to me and my team is to try and create some level of partnership with the company. Uh, At the end of the day, you're working with Amazon or, or Microsoft or some behemoth company, you want to have some level of a personal relationship with them. So Sometimes that can drive your decisioning to a smaller provider where you can be more of a known face rather than some nameless, faceless customer. Yeah. 
So talking a lot about the support organization at a cloud provider, Tom, I'm curious from your perspective of the industry, what it takes to build a really strong customer-focused support organization and what customers should be looking for to see if they have that. So I've actually done a lot of support in my past life, and it's very fascinating to me to see how people treat the support organization internally. You can generally figure it out pretty quickly based on one simple metric. How quickly are people trying to get you off of the phone? Most organizations treat their customer support like a cost center. Every time my people are talking, they're costing me money. And the metrics for that are driven around one simple thing, average call time. Keep that as low as possible. Resolve those issues, punt them off the phone, get them doing something else. Real good support organizations will hold your hand. They will be on the phone with you. They will be talking to you constantly, trying to figure out, are there any other issues? Hey, I found something that might be a problem we want to dig into. Let's keep this going. Because they figured out that when the customer is what the focus is and not the call time or any other silly metric, customers leave happy. Customers feel good about your organization. And surprisingly enough, they don't call back nearly as much. So rather than having five 15-minute phone calls, you might be able to get done and say one 35 or 40-minute call. I can specifically remember a situation that I was in when I was an intern at IBM something like 20 years ago, and they had just instituted a new policy where instead of having local support technicians on call to go work on situations that might come up in the facility, you had to call a national help desk, you had to get a ticket number, and you had to submit that into a support queue. And one of the golden rules was one ticket, one issue. You couldn't have a situation where a technician would go out and spend an extra hour and fix all of the customer's problems. So from their perspective, they were reducing the amount of time that people spent on the phone. But the hidden metric was they were driving their customer service through the floor because nobody was happy with the support organization. So, Tom, uh, that's a great point. Do you think this is something that's changing as cloud solutions are more common? Because it seems like, you know, the old paradigm of support was built around very point solutions that were well-defined. And now with cloud solutions, there's so many moving parts and they're so complex. I know the sales cycles have extended. Are you also saying kind of like the support mindset has to change that same way? Yeah, it absolutely does. And it has been changing because it's one thing to get support for a hobby kit or a proof of concept that just isn't running in your data center. Think about all the people that deployed on a cloud service, just kind of either as a shadow IT solution or maybe even something where we're trying this application out. But if it breaks, it doesn't really matter. I like to go back to the example of when I was trying to work on Linux for the first time. I had a problem. I would just completely reinstall Linux because I didn't care. I didn't have anything on that server that I really was critical enough for me to worry about. Now, flash forward to having mission-critical applications running on there, having more than half of your organization operating in the cloud. Now, problems become deal breakers, not day breakers. Now my company starts losing money because all of a sudden I can't get to Office 365 or something like that. And so it becomes more important for the support organization to dig you out of those holes, whether it's your fault or theirs. A good support organization should be able to figure out, okay, we're at fault here. We screwed up. We're going to help you fix this. Or, hey, I want to educate you about why you shouldn't be using these two services together because that may have been the guidance in the past. 
But we've fixed that since then. And to that point, Tom, I think that it's really important that as you're looking at those companies to provide support, you know, who's going to be, is it an entire group that's going to be working with XYZ company or is it a specific person? Do I have one point of contact that is going to work with my company and all issues? And how does that going to relay back to, you know, from the perspective of, are they monitoring my environment and they're seeing things before I see them? I think that that's another area that as you're looking at those cloud providers and to my initial point, you know, interviewing a cloud provider as if they're going to be your next employee. Yeah, I feel like that that's super critical because the relationships that you build with your support organization are very important to getting problems resolved the way you want them to. And you're right. You want to feel comfortable with that person. I agree with you. If that's a person you wouldn't mind hiring for what you're doing, then you found the right person. Just make sure you don't fall into the trap of relying too much on that person. I mean, I think we've all read the Phoenix Project and we've all been able to identify the Brents in our organization that kind of are roadblocks for workflow and things like that. Same thing happens in a support organization. Having been a part of them and having had to call them on several occasions, you get to be very invested in one person. And I feel like the the key there is your point of contact should absolutely be someone you're comfortable with that you feel is a good asset to have. But they also have to have their own assets. They have to have people that they're willing to call on and that they're willing to escalate to so that when situations get out of hand, it doesn't feel like you're trying to ride out a hurricane. And that's a great point, Tom, because... When I'm generally evaluating something from a sales standpoint, I go to my account manager as my quarterback. And I also need a quarterback when we're in the support stance. And sometimes that makes me go ahead and spend more and get a tan and have someone that's internal to the support organization and who's networked and who knows who to contact and who to connect me with when we're having a critical issue. So I would say not all support is equal when it comes to support contracts. You know, there's differing levels and you should be cognizant of that because you know, I have one vendor that gave me a support contract with unlimited tickets. At the end of the day, the test of the ticket was I wouldn't want to do another ticket with the people on the other end of that ticket. So it's kind of useless to have an unlimited contract. I would much rather have a limited number of resources that they're quality. So you're exactly right around, you know, just the caliber of person in the support organization really driving success. I would have to totally agree with you on that, Bill. The one thing that, you know, you mentioned a TAM, I can't express to you how important a TAM can be to a company as they're making their first journey into the cloud you know, having that expertise on staff and you really taking an assessment of your current staff. A lot of times I see clients, well, I don't want to pay for that. Uh, you know, I, I that contractor, that proposal is way too much. So take out that TM. But what they end up giving up in that process, you know, what looks like a line item that they're deleting, they're actually giving up on getting the most out of the solution that they're purchasing. And making the journey to cloud is not an easy one by any means. And I think if you're maturity level as a company to move to cloud, you also have to take in an account that there is a level of support that you have to provide to the company 
to your point, Tom, earlier about, you know, critical applications. You know, how much is it going to cost the company if that application goes down and you don't have access to Office 365? You know, having that TAM to be that support person or that SAM or however that looks like or that service provider becomes a crucial element that I think too many companies line item off of a contract. I agree. I think it's easy when you become too cost conscious to look at that as fluff. And I really don't see it as fluff because you miss the opportunity to shift from being purely reactive to proactive about your situation, making sure that someone's looking at the totality of your estate. So everything that you're running and making sure that you're on the proper storage and you've got the proper costing and You've got performance where you need performance. And hey, did you know that this got deployed in this way? It's not really what we recommend. And this might be something where it's not good. We've done lots of POCs as we try to innovate in our company. And, you know, sometimes we end up with monetary lessons. You know, we turn something on and we're like, oh, we don't need performance tier of storage. We can tier this on a lower tier. It ends up costing us more than if we deployed it on a performance tier of storage because of ingress charges or read charges and stuff on the slower, lower tier. So having an advisor that's working proactively for you is really, really valuable. Keeping you up to date with the changes inside of the cloud offerings, the different products, you know, it's almost too much to handle. And that's just if you've got a single cloud provider, much less if you're a (laughs) multi-cloud. So true. So, Lindy, as we've talked through, you know, the extension of your IT organization and, you know, having yourself a proactive technical resource to help you understand what you're doing, where you're going, how things could be better. A lot of these are advantages that small companies can take advantage of. You've worked with a lot of small companies in the past. Generally speaking, how are they approaching the cloud? Are they looking for that within a cloud provider by itself? Are they relying on VARs and MSPs that maybe they've worked with in the past to help them decide what cloud to go to or to actually manage that cloud for them? Basically, what I've seen, and you're right, I've worked with a lot of small, medium-sized businesses over the years, and I've heard, well, we're going all in into the cloud. We're sending everything to the cloud. And some of those customers have done that and they realized very quickly that there was a bad decision and maybe they should have listened to their trusted advisor <laughs> and really evaluated that from the perspective of doing a cloud readiness assessment. And I think that as you look at going to cloud, finding that partner that takes you through that roadmap of what makes sense, what applications are ready for cloud. What applications just can't go to cloud because of the dependencies they have on-prem? And I don't see enough of the small businesses doing that. Somebody goes to an event and they hear of a new technology or a new platform and somebody comes back and says, oh, we're going to go do that. And they don't spend enough time to really do, like you know, Phil stated, doing an evaluation of and doing POCs of you know different cloud providers. Who's going to be there in my darkest hour? Who is going to make sure that I'm not sending things into the cloud that's going to end up costing the company $500,000 a month in fees because they didn't do the economics behind what that would cost? I find that these companies 
a lot of times aren't relying on bars. Again, they're specific going to a manufacturer and to a vendor because of something that they heard at a conference of sorts. But if they engage into the bar space and finding that sized right MSP, I think they'll save themselves a ton of headaches as they start to really navigate this new world that we're all moving into. The hybrid cloud model is probably the model of choice. It's not a one-size-fit-all when you look at the clouds that are out there. And also setting up and making sure that your provider isn't siloed into an Azure or isn't siloed into AWS, that they have the flexibility and can work in that multi-cloud environment. So, Linda, you're absolutely right. One of the things that a lot of people kind of make as a negative mark against VARs and MSPs is this idea that, oh, well, they're just out there trying to make a buck off this stuff. And if people were really smart, they would know how to do this themselves. And I think back to my time working at a reseller. And one thing that I constantly told people was, if you don't buy anything from me, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to find a way to to make my number, but I want you to trust me more than I want you to do anything else. I want you to walk away from our interaction and say, you know, I feel like even if I don't want to buy his services, he had value that he could give to me. That's the value part more than the reseller part. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to companies that have people who the average small business IT department is actually Jim and accounting who just happens to know how Amazon works. And that guy doesn't have a whole lot of time. That person does not have bandwidth available to solve complex technical challenges. It's like being around a house. I mean, I can be a plumber if I have to be. But if the job's too big or too complicated, you can better believe I'm going to call an expert plumber. Do I realize that calling an expert plumber is going to cost me more? Yes. But if I break down what it's going to cost for me to try to fix this problem, it's probably cheaper in the long run for me to rely on someone who does this for a living. I couldn't agree with you more on that. I think that in a lot of cases, bars get a bad rap of being paper pushers. And if you really truly value the partnership that you have with your bar, listen to them, listen to what they have to say, and don't be afraid to fire them. That's the other piece of information that I'd like to get out there. You know, I find so much that a lot of companies stick with a particular VAR. Their company is growing in different directions, but they stick with a VAR because of a relationship, but that VAR isn't on the same page and they're not talking the same language or they're not addressing the same business issues and the complexity of their IT department as they grow. Don't be afraid that sometimes you have to, again, break up with that particular partner. Again, would you have that particular person working on staff if they weren't able to compete and to produce the work that you needed them to do? Yeah, I think that's a really great point that a lot of people don't always understand when they work with a VAR. They aren't just paper pushers, that the good VARs are there to be valuable. They want to put that V, the value part of the added reseller piece. And of course, I spent some time in a VAR as well for several years. And that was always forefront in our mind is like, are we actually providing value? Because we'd bring in our vendor partners with us a lot of times to those meetings. And so we had to show value directly in those scenarios. And quite frankly, a good VAR is one that you'll want to stay with, but you definitely should fire a bad one. And 
don't be a bad customer either. I mean, I had many conversations with the sales reps I worked with about firing customers. Like this customer is not worth our time because they are always questioning everything we do. They don't see the value in what we're doing. We're not providing an advantage to them. They're just using us to bounce ideas off of and to push paper. And, you know, we're here to provide value and to be a trusted advisor. And they clearly don't want that. So that relationship can go both ways. So my advice to customers always is look at them as a partner, just like we talked about the cloud provider being a partner. And I would honestly say, Brian, to that point, as a customer, as much as you shouldn't be afraid to fire your VAR when they're not helping you out, be wary of VARs that won't step away when they've bitten off more than they can chew. I can't count the number of times when we've been in over our heads on a project and I've turned around and be like, I need help or I need to just walk away from this because this is beyond the point where we can conceivably make this happen. And, you know, unscrupulous people above me were like, no, 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 just keep going. We'll cover for you. Yeah. And the alarm bells in the back of my head going off going, I'm lying to persons that are paying me money. And not only am I feeling like I'm stealing from them, I'm going to look bad when this is all said and done with. Watch out for those political agendas. Yeah. And being on the vendor side, I've, I've had that experience as well. We're highly competitive market in the hyperconverged space. And we were toe to toe with one of the smaller vendors in the space. And they ended up telling the customer, we're going to step away because we can't provide what you need. We would recommend going with the other solution. They will definitely give you what you need. And it sealed the deal for us. And I have nothing but respect for that company to this day because of that. That's where it is a relationship. It's a two-way street. You guys wisely point out that you don't want a customer that's constantly just a life force suck on your resources. You want a customer that's engaged and, and working with you. That's what we're looking for from a bar. And you hit the nail on the head, Brian. I mean, it, it's all about what value are you seeing. The problem that I've seen on the customer side is that Walmart mentality. I'm everything for everyone. You can find it all here. And that's not true. When you're looking at VARs and MSPs, the smart ones are very focused on certain competencies. And so if you're trying to make a DevOps sort of shift in your development style, and you're trying to go to cloud native or Kubernetes or something like that, that's going to be a completely different vendor and VAR sometimes than the one that you're doing your transactional storage upgrades and lifecycle sort of purchases with. It's important to find people who actually focus in that area because your results will be fundamentally different when you've got a good specialist. You know, it's sort of like me going to a foot doctor when I've got a brain problem. So <laughs> you, you want to find somebody that focuses on neuro. So that kind of thing is important. And it's kind of funny, but I think we approach it wrong from the customer side too often. Well, one thing I will add is that as companies are evaluating bars and MSPs for cloud management and things of that nature, take into account what is your education roadmap look like? What team are you assigning to work with this MSP or with this bar? And, you know, what are you doing to keep them on the top of their game so that you're not having a complete dependency on the bar or the MSP? Taking back and doing a knowledge skills assessment and identifying that skill gap and providing the education to get your team ramped up for these next steps is going to be key because that could you know, really reduce the number of support tickets that you have to put in and your dependency on that bar. Well, you know, anybody who's ever watched the TV show House of Lies, the consulting world's all about that after work. And 
you know, there are some Marty Khan kind of characters out there that will take advantage of the situation and will just continue to run rampant and unchecked with a customer. And I've been fortunate enough to work with really good, the opposite of that, the really good consultants where we make sure that we open our schedules and we're realistic about our capacity and can we actually devote enough resources to the POCs and to the work so that we're not dragging it out and wasting someone's time. From my standpoint, I'm always concerned about wasting people's time because that's my most valuable resource. So I don't like it when someone wastes mine. I don't want to waste someone else's. So just that kind of mutual respect, we always try to kind of lead with that. And it's had much better results than the times where we've just kind of blasted a vendor or, you know, I've seen other less successful management styles over the years. And that's really great advice. So I think it's time to unfortunately kind of bring this to a close. So kind of let me summarize what I've heard in this conversation, I think is going to be most valuable. I really love the bit of advice that we started with, which is to interview and do proofs of concept with those cloud providers. It's really the only way to understand what life is going to be like once you get migrated onto it, because you really should be looking at them as an extension of your IT team. So you need to understand how you're going to be treated. And I love the analogy of it's going to be one of the worst days of your life. Are they going to be there for you? You know, that's how we judge friends. That's how we should judge our partners in business as well. And as you're doing your research, look at all the ways that they communicate externally. So social media being probably one of the best ways to kind of see what they're saying publicly to see, you know, how in depth do they get with the amount of information they give out. If you're doing a POC, make sure you're doing something that will result in a call to support, even if it's just to ask a question about how to set something up, because then you start to understand who's supporting it. You know, what is the personality of the support organization and how are they going to communicate? Are they going to be open with you? Or are they going to be willing to spend time and talk to you? Because one of the signs you can look for is how quickly they try to get you off the phone. Because that's important to understand whether they're going to be customer focused or if they're just focused on churning through calls as quickly as possible. Because when you have a support organization that is really customer focused, and that's the metric they actually care about, as opposed to the call time, customers are always going to be happier. It's a great indicator as to how focused they are on you as a customer, as opposed to their own just internal metrics that really are meaningless when it comes to whether customers are satisfied or not. And that could be a sign that they're truly a partner with you. So another aspect to look for is who's really your champion on the support side of things. Do you just get the phone call and, and whoever answers is whoever answers? Do you have an escalation path? You know, can you call up your sales rep and have them go to bat for you with the support? Cloud migration isn't easy. And how will they support you beyond break fix can make a huge difference. So understand whether you get a single point of contact, if you're just calling into a larger group, if you have a small group potentially supporting because then they start to understand you, your environment, what you have going on, what your goals are, and the things that are going to make you happy. And you know, a lot of cloud providers these days are offering single point of contacts kind of in the form as a technical account manager. Take those seriously. If they have those available to you, that is somebody that is designed usually within the support organization to be your proactive champion, to look for things that are going to make a difference to you and to be proactive at giving you that communication. And sometimes that can make all the difference of value well beyond what you would pay for them. And if you're working with existing VARs or MSPs, they could potentially be strong partners for you as well. 
hybrid cloud is very much a reality these days where you have stuff running on premises and you have stuff in the cloud. So if you can get a VAR or an MSP that knows what you have on premises, that knows what you have in the cloud, you've got a really strong partner there, a good person to understand both ends of the solution for you. But do watch out for any silos that may exist. You know, with a lot of us that have worked with VARs in the past, they may have one or two partners that they really favor. And so you know you're always going to get a solution from those one or two partners. Same thing can happen with the cloud. You know, they may be focused only on Azure and they would never suggest a company like iLand that may give you a better solution depending on what you need. Be aware of that as well, because that exists in the cloud as well as the on-premises vendors. And make sure they actually have the bandwidth and expertise that you need because you'll be dependent on them somewhat unless you're good at keeping your staff up to date on the technologies so that they can be much more self-sufficient. Tons of great information there. So I really appreciate that conversation. But unfortunately, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. So big thank you to Phil, Tom, and Lindy for that great conversation. Also, thanks to iLand for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information on this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can find our episodes on your favorite podcast app. And if you found this content useful, we'd really appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues, writing us on those podcast platforms as well. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. Just because you can swipe your credit card and get in doesn't mean you actually know what you're doing once you get there.